Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm going to read uh, verses 1 through 11. We just are going to pick up where we left off last week uh, as we work through Paul's letter to the Corinthians, his first, the first one that we have anyway. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 1 through 11 says this, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would give us what we need today. Help us to understand. I pray that we would leave here today with more love for one another. Uh, with our eyes set firmly on the Christ who has gone before us. Seated at the right hand of the Father where he always lives to intercede. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we looked at chapter 5 where the Apostle Paul um, confronted the arrogance of the Corinthian church for allowing a man who was actively involved in a sexually immoral relationship to continue as a, essentially as a member in good standing in the church. And often, it's been my experience at least, um, that 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is cited when a church is working through matters of church discipline. And while that is really what is happening there in that chapter, it's actually a little bit more abrupt than that. If you remember, Paul states right in verse 2, he says, Let him who has done this be removed from among you. And as I said last week, Paul skips the steps that Jesus lays out in dealing with a, with a fellow believer who has sinned against you. Because this guy has sinned against the entire church community. He's continuing to break God's moral law, and he is actively involved in a sin that even the pagans don't tolerate, he said. And it's important that chapter 5 is the backdrop to chapter 6. Because while, yes, there's clearly a, an infestation of sin in the, into the church in chapter 5, the issue that Paul is actually confronting is their arrogance and their pride in allowing that to continue. And so when we come to chapter 6, Paul's rebuke is even more harsh. Because while they are allowing 
sin to continue, they're also reaching out to the world for guidance or judgment, we could say, in dealing with what can only be described, especially compared to chapter 5, as, as comparatively lesser and petty arguments. Now, before we get into this, I, I want to give you a, a disclaimer or, or really actually a, a point of clarification. This chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, or specifically verses 1 through 8, but 9, 10, and 11 is the application. Um, this passage is really about disagreements that lead to civil lawsuits between believers, specifically in the same church. So let me give you the three clarifiers that we need to address before we can get back into the text here. And the first is that when it comes to disputes between, between members of two different churches, we need to acknowledge that the issues can be kind of sticky, right? Because while there are some churches or denominations that have ecclesiastical courts set up for this very purpose, many, like us, are independent and so we rely on elders of both involved churches in order to seek reconciliation. But really where it gets the most sticky is when one person claims to be a Christian, yet is either not a church member anywhere, doesn't, doesn't go to church anywhere, or, or is connected to a church that, that frankly does not preach the gospel, not a true church. In those types of cases, I don't think there's an outright prohibition but if this were to happen to one of us, um, the elders, frankly, the elders should be consulted on a case-by-case basis. So just to be clear, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about someone who claims to be a Christian, yet does not attend a church or goes to an apostate church and has wronged you, has maybe ripped you off or not done the work that he had promised or something like that. And the only way to recoup your losses is through the courts. In those cases, I don't know if that person is really a Christian, so the elders are here to help you walk through those difficult situations, okay? And we've actually had to do that before. And the second clarifier is this. This is not about lawsuits between believers and unbelievers. There are times when we as Christians need to appeal to the courts of justice. For example, over the past decade, there have been many instances of Christian organizations or businesses that have rightly sued over, say, forced mandates and rulings that have violated religious freedom. And so here I'm thinking about Colorado cake bakers, uh, flower arrangers, Hobby Lobby, you may remember. And in the past several months, several Christian colleges, universities, and seminaries have sued the federal government over some of the various mandates, usually involving gay marriage. This is also, by the way, uh, not a prohibition of Christian business owners who have, who have to go to the courts in order to collect payment for services rendered. This is about disagreements within the church be, between believers. And then the third clarifier is this, and this is probably the most important for us. This is not about those who have broken the law. When I was in high school, back in Concord, New Hampshire, 
there was a large and influential church nearby where an adult man manipulated and impregnated a teenage girl. And the church dealt with that. This was back in the late 80s. The church dealt with that by having both of them come forward, ask for the forgiveness of the church for their sin. It was dealt with within house. He was rebuked and then set free to go about his life while the girl was, by her family, quietly sent away out of state to have the baby. And about 10 or 15 years later, she, as an adult with a better understanding of just exactly what had really happened, she went to the police and pressed charges against him. And just so that we're clear, that's what would happen here. Uh, we would call the police. We wouldn't do what they did. <laughs> we would call the police. But 1 Corinthians, and any cases of abuse or any kind of law-breaking, but 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is not about those who have broken the law. It's not about abuse of any kind in that sense. If you're, if you're stealing from your employer, whether he is a Christian or not, he has every right to call the police, right? That's what Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7 is about. Just turn over there. I want you to see this. There's been a lot of talk about this passage, but this is what this is for. So Romans 13 says this, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on wrongdoers. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience." For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So, if you break the law, the police should be called, okay? That's not what this passage is about, though, and I want to get at what this passage really is. And, and having said all of that, of sort of the disclaimers or clarifiers before we get into this, we also keep, need to keep in mind one other thing, and that is the fact that both Peter and Paul, in two different places, each of them, exhort us not to return evil for evil. In fact, in Romans chapter 12, verse 17, Paul writes this. He says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Okay, so those are our disclaimers or points of clarification. So let's look at what the text actually says here. Look again at verse 1. This really sets up the whole passage. 
So 1 Corinthians 6.1, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Remember, the Corinthians all along, as we've worked through the first five chapters now, the Corinthians have been boasting. Paul has mentioned this several times already. He even reminded them back in chapter 1, verse 26, he says this. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. He's exhorting them to boast only in God. And then in chapter 3, verse 21, he, he says to them, let no one boast in men. Even in chapter 5, he corrects them. Your boasting is not good, he said. And now here in chapter 6, he's citing yet another reason why their boasting is groundless. It's because someone in the church has the gall, the nerve, the audacity to haul a Christian brother into court to be judged by unbelievers. And Paul's point throughout all of these chapters... um, I think throughout all, all the way up to where we are now, and it will continue, his point is that the, the world or the culture is still very much ingrained in the life and the mindset of those in the church. See, for the Greeks, Corinth being in Greece, for the Greeks, this was a way of settling arguments and disputes, and, and it was a part of normal, everyday life. Yet Paul doesn't really single out, I don't know if you noticed this or not as we read through it, Paul doesn't really single out one individual um, beyond the first verse. Clearly there's somebody doing it and he has that person in mind in verse 1. But then he broadens it to the whole church and this is a rebuke and it's a rebuke of the church and on their failure to resolve disputes among themselves. Now this is where I want you to turn again. We need to turn to Matthew chapter 18. And let's take a look at Jesus' specific instructions on how to deal with these kinds of abuse. So turn back to Matthew chapter 18, just verses 15 to 20. Jesus says this, verse 15, Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you so that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now, we could, we could spend a lot of time walking through um, some hypotheticals and what-ifs 
and, and trying to determine what the actual sin is in some of these instances, or maybe what the root sin is when, when, these, when these disputes and issues come up in a church. And, and those things are important, and when those issues come up, we should spend a lot of time figuring out what the root problems are. But the point here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is this. The church at Corinth was completely disregarding Jesus' instructions there in Matthew chapter 18. The instructions, by the way, that were given specifically by Christ, and instead they were turning to the world for the world's judgment and rulings on their disputes. So imagine someone in this room has sinned against you grievously. And, and by the way, scholars believe, it's not in the scriptures, but scholars think that the church of Corinth was probably 75 or so people. So, so probably smaller than who are in here now. So imagine somebody in this room has sinned against you grievously and you can't overlook it. Maybe they gossiped about you to the point that we might call slander. If you were a member of the Corinthian church, you would go to the courthouse and file a claim. And then you would stand before a, a judge or maybe a tribunal who the night before was worshiping some false god or other. Maybe even worshiping at the temple prostitute. And the instructions of Scripture in Matthew's Gospel would not even enter into your thinking. You can see why Paul is so heated why he is so worked up in this passage. In fact, the tone of this, of chapter 6, is actually even more harsh than it was when he was addressing the immorality and the arrogance of chapter 5. Because in that situation, while the church was in danger, it really was an internal matter. Here, They've specifically and purposefully gone outside the church. They've gone to the world and asked for wisdom and judgment when Jesus has already given us instruction about how to deal with this. Paul is, Paul is deeply surprised. He's even shocked that they're doing this. Listen to this again. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? In fact, that, that phrase, does he dare, that's forceful. One, one commentator said, this is, this is thundering indignation. How dare you, he says. And I think it's telling that while the, while the sexual sin of chapter 5 brought indignation from Paul, this brings thundering indignation it is very clear that he is upset with them. And I should mention this because I think, it, I think this helps us to understand how far the Corinthians have strayed right here. The Roman Empire, and Corinth was a part of the empire. Rome allowed Jews to settle their disputes about religion or, or any other trivial matters in their view among themselves. And especially early on, Rome viewed Christianity as just a subset of Judaism. They didn't really care that much about Christians, especially at this point. It was still pretty small. A couple hundred years, it's going to become an issue. Even not that long, it's going to become an issue. But at this point, they just kind of looked at Christianity as some kind of subset of, of, of the Jews. 
So in other words, the courts could very easily have said, the courts there in Corinth, they could have very easily have said to them, just deal with this yourselves. But the church was evidently insistent that they be involved. And as I said, while Paul seems to have a a specific case in mind there in the first verse, he also sees this as a pattern in the church. And I think that one of the reasons that he's so appalled by this is because, what he, because of what he wrote in this opening of this letter back in chapter 1. Just listen to verse 4. He says this, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. In Christ, they have been enriched in all speech and all knowledge, Paul says. And yet they are so ready to turn to outsiders to settle their disputes. In fact, Paul calls those outsiders, what they really are, unrighteous. They have not been declared righteous by the blood of Christ. They stand as enemies of God. And yet these Christians are relying on them for their judgment. Romans chapter 1 verse 18 says this about unrighteous. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Notice here that there in verse 1, the Apostle Paul doesn't refer to the church members, the people of Corinth, as the righteous. The the setting is not the the unrighteous versus versus the righteous. He calls them saints. Saints, even though they're bragging about their status, even though they're bragging about their wisdom and their power, Paul is reminding them, just subtly here with this one statement, he's reminding them of the only status that really matters, and that is their standing before God. Now, it's it's not that they aren't righteous, right? Saints are. We have been clothed in Christ's righteousness, As believers in Jesus Christ, we have the same status as Abraham, of whom it was said, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. They have been declared righteous by God, but these saints are living lives that are indecipherable from the unrighteous. Now, I hope I'm not beating a dead horse in your minds. Um spending a lot of time on this first verse, but Paul's issue throughout this chapter, or even these several chapters, is that those who have the status as saints seem to have been unaffected by that when it comes to their behavior. Those who have the status as saints in the Corinth here seem to have been unaffected by that when it comes to their behavior. They're behaving just like the unrighteous. So here he is insisting that it is just simply wrong for those who are saints to seek compensation or damages from each other in front of those who are not saints, those who have no standing in the Christian community. 
And then he goes on to give them three reasons for this rebuke, beginning with these rhetorical questions in verses 2 and 3. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And that if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So the first reason that Paul issues this rebuke, the first reason that the saints should not be going in front of the unrighteous to, uh, for judgment is because the saints will actually judge the world. Now, now we have to start with this. In order to understand this passage, this is what's known as a lesser to greater argument. Here's what that means. If you can pick up a 75-pound box, or let's just say, if you can pick up a Volkswagen Beetle engine, okay, a couple of you know what that is like, then probably you can pick up a glass of water, right? If you have the strength to pick up a 75-pound box, then you have the strength to pick up a glass of water. Similarly, since the Corinthians are to judge the world, as Paul says, then they ought to be perfectly competent to judge relatively trivial cases between believers now. So that's the basis for Paul's argument right here. And he's clearly talking about a future judgment. And obviously, from his rhetorical questions and his tone, they should have known what he was talking about. But what's fascinating about this is that up until this point, when Paul is writing this letter, when he's, when he's communicating this to the Corinthians, the scripture isn't really explicit or clear about this. And yet Paul says, don't you know? And then to top it all off, he brings in the angels in verse 3. Don't you know? Now there are hints of those things that go back in the book of Daniel. There's hints of that uh, saints sitting in judgment or ruling with, with God or Christ. Um, Daniel hints at it. Uh, Jesus says some things in Matthew's gospel. And then later, the book of Revelation will be much more specific about the role of saints in the, in the future rule and judgment of Christ. And so what's kind of humorous as you read through this is that what, while Paul is stating the truth here, he's right. Don't you know that the saints are going to rule, sit in judgment? Don't you know that we're going to actually judge and sit and rule over the angels? Paul is right about that. But the Corinthians might have been able to respond with, actually, we didn't know that. Huh. Well, then your thinking is too small. Is it? After all, the Christ that we follow is the Christ of Psalm 110. Just listen. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will, freely offer, will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. 
The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. He is the Christ. The Christ that we serve is the king. And he is the Christ who has ascended to his throne where he is seated at his right hand and where he reigns. See, we can't lose the forest for the trees here. Paul tells them the truth. Paul understands this. They don't understand. That's okay. This is all about authority. Paul's purpose in these verses is not to articulate doctrine about the saints' role in the final judgment of the world and the angels. John can get into that in the book of Revelation. His point is to point out this disturbing inconsistency between what they will be doing in the future and how they are living right now. When Christ returns under his reign, his people will once again have dominion, even over angels. We will be crowned with glory, and this should affect the petty disagreements that we have with one another here and now. Which brings us to the second reason, really, to his rebuke. And the second reason that we should not be taking one another to the worldly courts, which is because saints possess godly wisdom. Saints possess godly wisdom. Back in chapter 2, verse 12, he had said this, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things given us, freely given us by God. Saints possess godly wisdom through the Holy Spirit. Here he says to them in verses 4, 5, and 6, So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. The Apostle Paul is continuing with these these critical and, and, and rhetorical questions. And, and really, he's asking the same question. What are you doing over and over and over again? And this, this line, those who have no standing in the church, it actually, it, it literally could be translated, those who are disdained. Those who are disdained. As believers... We should actually disdain the worldly values of unbelievers. Have you thought about that? As Christians, as those who have put our trust in Christ, we should actually just not enjoy at all, put it that way, the worldly values of unbelievers. Because frankly, here's what they are. I'll give you a list. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And if that's true, that's Ephesians 2, 1-3, if that is true, then it's shameful, as he says, to bring our disputes to be settled by those with no church standing, with no church authority. How is it possible, Paul is asking, that people who think they are so wise don't have enough wisdom to handle internal disagreements? 
This rebuke, this is harsh. And it was, it was necessary for the Corinthians. And I will just say, it's profitable for us to learn from. Because as saints, we possess godly wisdom because the Holy Spirit dwells in us. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. We possess godly wisdom through the Holy Spirit. And that wisdom is sufficient to judge between disputes between ourselves. And then third, this rebuke is necessary because it reveals their defeat. It's revealing their defeat. Look at verses 7 and 8. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. To have these kind of disputes at all is a defeat for the church, Paul is saying. I remember um, probably 20 years ago, sitting in a church members meeting, as they were talking about replacing the pews with folding chairs. And literally, the argument, the dispute, was over the, was over the width of the bottoms that would be sitting in the chairs. So, which chairs are we going to buy? How much are we going to spend? On and on and on. There was a tape measure involved. I'm guessing that if you've been around any church for a while, you could come up with some similar examples of ridiculous disputes. To have these kind of disputes at all is a defeat for the church. When you take someone who has wronged you to court, the goal is to win, right? When one Christian takes a fellow Christian, when one believer takes someone who sits across the aisle, someone who shares in the communion meal, someone who sits under the same preaching and singing together week after week, when you take a brother to court in order to win a judgment against him, no matter what the court decides, it is a loss because the church didn't settle the case. Go back to Jesus' instructions in Matthew chapter 18. In any dispute between believers, one person is charging another person with wrongdoing. One person is charging another person with sin. And Jesus provided a clear path for resolution and restoration, even within the parameters of the Old Testament law, by the way. Deuteronomy chapter 19 verse 15 says this, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Jesus is simply following this pattern. But Paul says if you cannot come to a satisfactory resolution between, between the church or within the church, why not rather just suffer wrong? Why not rather just deal with it? Remember Colossians chapter 3? Verses 12 and 13 says this, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, 
bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. But the Corinthians were not doing this. Instead, they're acting just like the unrighteous, even toward fellow Christians. And to emphasize this point, Paul lays out a dichotomy in verses 9 through 11 that really should bring every one of us up short as he compares the unrighteous with the saints. Look, look at the unrighteous in verses 9 and 10. So remember, in verse 1, he listed, uh, he said, does he dare to go before the unrighteous instead of the saints? So there's two groups of people. Listen to the unrighteous, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Just so that you know, this is not an all-inclusive list of people who will not inherit the kingdom. Meaning... Um, and when we talk about inherit the kingdom of God, meaning this is not an all-inclusive list of those who um, will not be saved from the day of judgment. Paul is laying this out here as a way of saying, don't think you can get away with living an unrepentant lifestyle. You're acting just like the unrighteous. You can't do these things and still be a citizen of God's kingdom. But the context of this chapter... The context of, of taking fellow believers to court. In this context, he's reminding them that, that these un, are, are the unrighteous. These people are the unrighteous. These are the people that they are asking to judge their disputes. That's what he's telling them there. This is who you're going before, he says. The unrighteous. That You're asking this group of people to judge your disputes. Now, back in chapter 5, at the end of that chapter, Paul already used some of those same terms. He, he has a similar list there. But here he adds four more, four additional terms. I don't think we need specific um, explanations of each of these things. You kind of understand what a thief is or what an adulterer is. But I want to say that I think that these lists are here, one of the reasons that they're here is because these are probably some of the disputes that they were having. He adds to this adulterers, thieves, and then he adds men who practice homosexuality. And there's actually two terms there. The ESV puts it that way. I know some other versions use a different phrase. In, in the Greek, there's actually two terms. I'm not gonna, I'm gonna be delicate here. One means effeminate men, and the other means dominant men. And there is a, an immoral aspect to the phrase that Paul uses. You can figure it out on your own. I'm going to leave it at that. But the question is, why does Paul put this list here? And the answer is, first, to show us who are the unrighteous that he's been talking about all along. I've said that. But also because of this line, and it's the first line of chapter, verse 11, such were some of you. And such were some of you. I think this is literal. There were saints in the church of Corinth who used to fit into these categories. 
one or more. There were saints, church members, those who had been, had been saved and were now a part of the church of Corinth, who used to fit under one or more of those categories, who used to be the unrighteous, but, but now, now they have been made holy. Now look at verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. God intervened and washed them clean from all of their filth, all of their sin and shame. He sanctified them. He set them apart as his holy people. He justified them. He legally declared them to be righteous through Jesus Christ. And I think it's telling that he uses the term justified there. These aren't in order. Um, this isn't part of the order of salvation. These are just three things that God did. And one of the things that he did for, for believers, for every saint, is he, he declared justice was served. He declared Christ paid the penalty. He justified them. The gavel fell. And they were declared not guilty because Christ paid the penalty. God saved them through the blood of Christ. And the Spirit applied what God had planned and Jesus accomplished. When we are wronged by a fellow believer, our response says more about us than it does about the offense, right? When we are wronged by a fellow believer. When we consider these things, when we are wronged, and we will be, right? We must consider our status before God as saints, as saints who have been justified, sanctified, and washed. Saints who do not act like the world acts because we have been made clean, because we have been set apart as holy to the Lord, because justice has been served in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And I praise God that As far as I know, we're not struggling with these lawsuits between one another. <laughs> Conflict has been minimal. God's grace continues to be poured out on this church. But as we come to these passages and we see the Corinthians and the sin that they were just so tangled up in, the thing to keep in mind is that that their biggest problem was that when, when they were made saints, when they were justified, when they were washed and sanctified and set apart, they didn't always act like they were justified. They didn't always love one another in the way that they should. They, didn't always, they weren't always quick to bear with one another and forgive one another. They held on to things. And it went to the point where they were just going to court against each other. It doesn't take much for sin to just take over our hearts and our minds, does it? Our imaginations run wild. We need to repent of those things and trust in Christ and remember that, that phrase, and such were some of you. Let's pray together. Father, as we consider those three words, washed, 
sanctified, justified. As we consider the blood of Christ that covers our sin. Lord, we, we have to rejoice. When we come to the table, Lord, we have to rejoice and come with thankfulness that we are called saints, that we have been made righteous by the blood of Christ. So, Lord, I pray that you would remind us of your goodness as we come to the table and break bread and drink of the cup. Remind us of Christ's work that we proclaim until he returns, that we might be conformed to his image, that we might love one another as as Christ has loved the church. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.